We're in the second chapter of the book of Hebrews. And we'll start reading in a moment at verse 5. I need your help tonight, so you study with me and we'll, we'll get into God's Word together. A few years ago I was preaching a uh, revival up in the Northwest and uh, I had a meeting in Portland, Oregon that I had to attend. So I got up real early and flew from Lubbock, Texas to uh, Portland and had a meeting there at noon, Portland time, Oregon time. And uh, after that meeting got on a plane and flew to Seattle and a preacher came and met me in the, at the airport in Seattle and drove about a 110 miles to his church. Got there just about time for the service to begin. So I preached that service that night. And um, after the service, we had some fellowship time with the membership of the church. And so it was about 12 o'clock Pacific time when I finally got in bed, staying with these folks. Two o'clock Texas time. In the wee hours of the morning, I just, I just woke up with a, with, a, with a shock. And I kind of sat up in the bed. This, you know, I was a half asleep and half awake. I couldn't figure out where I was. You know, I've been traveling a lot. And I, I, it took me several seconds. It took me a minute to figure out where I was. It was I was trying my best. I knew that I had to be in some strange place. And I looked around. I couldn't figure out what in the world was going on. Kind of reminds me of the uh, joke that Harry Truman's favorite joke. He said this guy got a blow to the head and his family thought he was dead. So they put him away in this casket, had him in this casket. And he was lying in this casket in the funeral home that late that night. And he woke up, uh, you know, he came out of his coma and sat up in the casket and he looked around and he thought to himself, if I'm alive, what am I doing in this casket? If I'm dead, why do I need to go to the restroom? I'm sure that there have been times when, 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 when there have been some interludes and, uh, and unexpected things happened to you and you didn't know what was going on. You don't know where you, where, you, where you were at the time. And I imagine that some of you have, um, in reading novels, you've read novels and you've got into that thing and it's just, you're going along fine and all of a sudden the uh, author just kind of um, slips in this subplot and sends you down this different road and all of a sudden you're thinking, what is he talking about? I'm lost in this thing. Well, something like that happens when you study the book of Hebrews. It doesn't take you long into the book until you discover that you're pretty well lost. And what's, what's he trying to say? For example, there is really no connection between verse 5 and the verses that precede it. And you may come from time to time in this book and wonder, what is this man trying to say? I don't see the connection and the relation. And even though there is a major theme to the book of Hebrews, the author does not feel compelled to stay with that major theme. And occasionally, he just kind of inserts a warning, kind of stabs in this warning, a parenthetical warning, in order to keep the folks online because he's writing to Christians who are in the kind of a Jewish Christians who are in this no man's land. 
And they were just hanging on by their fingernails and some of them were getting ready to defect and leave the faith. And so as the author of the book of Hebrews develops the theme of the superiority of Christ, occasionally he just takes down a different road and he just stabs us awake with warnings. We've just finished one of them. In the first four verses of the second chapter, a warning that we better not forsake what we've heard, that we better not drift away from those things that we know to be true. And then he comes back to verse five. And there is this parenthetical warning that, that, that really does not relate to the verses that precede it or that follow it. And so really what the best thing for us to do is to read verse 14 again and then skip down to verse five. And understand that, that he's writing to these Jewish Christians who are uh, tempted, who are tempted to defect. And he talks to them about angels and some of them are thinking, you know, it would be such a better life to have an angel's life. It would be such a better life to have some kind of uh, this kind of a, a spiritual being existence, it'd be much better than having to suffer out my life on the earth. And so the, the author of the book of Hebrews is insisting that they have a better life than that, that it's better to be a man, a human being, than an angel. Some of you girls think, well, your man is an angel, but... It's better to be a human being than an angel for two reasons, three really. One is that angels have never tasted of his salvation. That's what Bill was saying in his song, one day I'm going to tell the angels what it's like to be saved. Angels have never enjoyed the experience of redemption, of knowing God's grace, of experiencing his redemption and forgiveness. It's better to be a human being than an angel, he said, because after all, angels have been sent by God to minister to you. So let's read verse 14 with that context. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to minister into service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? For he did not subject to angels the world to come, the inhabited world concerning which we are speaking. Now, the third and greatest reason why it would be better to have a human life than an angel life is because God has subjected the, inhabitant, the inhabited earth to the dominion and the authority of man. Now, I need you to catch on to what I'm talking about. The implication of verse 5 is that one day God placed everything in his creation under the dominion and the authority and the rule of man. Everything. And so you and I look around and we say, well, it sure doesn't look like it. If everything is under the rule and the authority and the dominion of, of, of human beings, um, how about those folks who swim out in the Gulf of Mexico? You know, I guess that shark, you know, doesn't know that he's under the dominion and the rule of a human being. If we believe that, 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 that man is in 
in control and rules over everything that God created. What about the wild beast, you know, or the, uh, spend a night in the, in the Florida Everglades. I know that's the comeback. Well, that's the way it used to be. It used to be that everything in this created world was under the dominion and the rule of man. Let me show you where it was. You take your Bible and you turn to the book of Genesis chapter 1. The first chapter of Genesis. I'll show you a remarkable thing. Beginning verse 26. Now hold your place in Hebrews 2 because we're going to be back there in just a minute. Look at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them, that is, all of mankind, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now I want you to get the picture of how it was in paradise. Here is Adam and Eve and everything in God's creation responded to them. They may have talked animal language. You know, you smile at that. They probably did. And all the creatures that crawled on the earth that are now wild were, were, were tamed to them and they ate out of their hands and they followed them. And the birds of the air would swoop down and rest on their shoulders and eat out of their hands, every bird. And they would play in the waters and all the creatures of the waters that, that, that swam in the paths of the waters came to them and everything was in subjection to them. Everything was under their dominion. And it is an idea that is really not developed in the Bible until you get to Psalm 8. So I want us to turn to that psalm. Psalm 8. We're going to wait. We're on our way back to Hebrews chapter 2. But since we're in the neighborhood, we're going to stop by Psalm 8 for a visit. Tremendous psalm. The other night, the other day, I decided I'd memorize this and memorize Psalm 8. Marvelous scripture. I want to begin reading with you in verse 3. It says, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, salvation is the arm work of God, the heavens are the, is the fingers work of God, the work of thy fingers. Everything in the heaven he just put there with his fingers. The moon and stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him? And the Son of Man means mankind's children, mankind's offspring, and the Son of Man that thou dost care for him. Thou hast made him a little lower than God and dost crown him with glory and majesty. Thou dost make him to rule over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, 
and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. Everything in God's great creation under the authority and the rule and the dominion of man. Now let's go back to chapter 2. And what you have in verses 6 through verse 8 is just a, 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 a repetition of Psalm 8, quoting Psalm 8. And he comes to the end of verse 8 and he says, For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subjected, that is not subject to him. Now, I don't know how you interpret that, but I interpret it this way that everything God created at one time, man ruled over and was in control of. But we all know that it's not like that now. What happened? The remaining part of verse 8 describes the history of man. Look, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Something happened on the way from paradise to here. And you know what happened as well as I do. Man lost this dominion. He lost this position in the world by his sin. Oh, what a price sin has exacted from humankind. And I was just thinking the other day that probably Adam is the only one who really knows what man has lost. For he has seen it all. He had everything. He was the one man who had dominion over everything and enjoyed paradise and all that God gave him in paradise. And he's the one who knows what he's lost, what mankind has lost. We've, we've, we've never experienced that. But man lost his position in the fall. He lost it all. So that now these animals that were once subject to him and followed him and loved him as a friend, now are his enemies and opponents. And these creatures of the sea and of the air, now in opposition, and there is this hostility and, 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 and enmity in the universe, there is this war that rages as the result of sin. Now, it, it is important that you that you understand what I'm about, that you catch what I'm about to say, because I think that in grasping this, we get a real grip on the theology of man. I believe that God, I mentioned this last Sunday, has given everybody these drives. We all are born with these God-given drives. They're a part of our creation. There is this drive to be like God. There is the drive, success drive. There is the fear drive. There is the worship drive. And there is the rule drive. Now where did that come from? It came from God. And it was a part of His creation. He gave man, He gave Adam 
this drive, this desire to rule. It was a part of his being created in the image of God. And what temptation is, please get this, temptation is an inducement or an enticement to express or to satisfy a God-given drive in a God-forbidden way. A legitimate drive in an illegitimate way. And so Adam and Eve were given this God-given drive to have dominion and to rule. It was a part of God's plan for them. But Satan came and his temptation was to get them to express this God-given drive in a God-forbidden way. And they desired to be, rather than to be God's man in the garden, they desired to be God in the garden. And they sought to satisfy and to express a God-given drive in a God-forbidden way. Now mankind, you and I, have that same drive. The desire to rule and have dominion. It's a part of us. A dog doesn't climb the mountain because it's there, like a man's challenge to, to conquer the, the mountain. A dog doesn't explore out of space because he wants to see what's out there. I mean, he's perfectly, perfectly content to stay at his little house and, you know, and eat his alpo. It's man that has that drive to, to rule, to control, to have dominion over the creation. And man has been tempted or is tempted to express and to satisfy that God-given drive in a God-forbidden way. That's where humanism comes in. For the, the temptation and the enticement is, hey, I'm big enough for anything that comes along. I'll find a way to, 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 to accomplish. I'll find a way to succeed. Look at what I've done. Now I want you to look. We're ready now for verse 9. Watch this. He said, we do not yet see things subjected to our dominion. We do not have things under our dominion, but we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that by the grace of God he might taste death, death for everyone. Now watch this. He said we do not have dominion. We do not see things under our dominion. That's obvious. Everything's out of control. But we do see him who tasted death for every man. Now what is he trying to tell us? He's saying that he, Jesus, has conquered man's last enemy, which is death, to tell us that he has conquered that which conquers us. He is the conqueror of that which conquers us. Now man may conquer out of space and he may control his environment and he may make all of these you know, advances in, in technology, 
and he may gain dominion over this created world, but he never has conquered death and will never conquer death. But Jesus has conquered that which conquers us. Now what he's saying is this, that the way, the way to express this God-given drive for dominion and rule, the way to, to satisfy this God-given drive to dominion and rule is submission to the conqueror. Is by submission to the conqueror. That the way to have dominion in life, to rule in life, is through submission to the one who has conquered. Amazing thought. And there's a New Testament illustration of it. One day Jesus was walking along and a centurion came to him. centurion is a man in charge of a hundred troops. And he said to Jesus, my servant is ill. And Jesus said, I'll come and heal him. And the man said, no, for I too am a man under authority. I say, and I have authority over others. I say to this man go and he goes. I say to this man come and he comes. All you've got to do is give the command. You don't have to go to my house. I'm not worthy for you to come there. And Jesus said, I've never seen faith like that. And that bothered me for a long time. I, I didn't understand that. How could Jesus say to a man who said just that, I've never seen faith like that in the world? I know the answer now. Notice what the man said. He said, I too am one who is under authority just like you. And you'd think that the next statement he would make would be, when they say go, I go. When they say come, I come. But the next statement is, I have people to, under my authority. I say to them go and they go. I say to them come and they come. Now this is the clue. This is what he's saying. That the way to have authority is to live under authority. As long as I live under authority, I have authority. As long as I live in submission, I have power, I have authority. And I'm able to say to others, go and they go, come and they come, do this and they do it. As long as I live under the umbrella of, of the authority that I live under now, I have authority. And Jesus said, I, that's that man, he's operating on the same level. He's He's operating on the same wavelength I am. For my authority, he's saying, Jesus is saying, my authority comes because I live under the authority of the Father. Now, the reason why we have lost our authority, our dominion, our ability to rule, and the reason why we live in constant defeat, in constant fear, is that we have come out from under the authority. We have rejected his authority. And when man comes and submits to the ruler, to the one who has conquered, he has power, he has authority. You see that? And so Jesus, so he says of Jesus, he conquered. And so he's crowned with glory and honor. And the way to have authority is by submission. That's the way you have authority. That's the way you have authority in the home. You read the New Testament and, and, and you'll see it over and over again that the authority comes in the home when people submit to one another. Now, 
There are two statements I want to make, kind of sum everything up. The first statement is this, choosing Christ, choosing Christ results in true hope that makes the ideal a reality. Now I need to say it again and and kind of explain what I'm saying. Choosing Christ results in true hope that makes the ideal a reality. Now, the ideal is what is described in Genesis 1 in Psalm 8. And when a person, when we choose Jesus Christ, the reality of Genesis 1 and Psalm 8, the ideal of that becomes a reality. You see, what you and I were made and meant to be was, is an experience as an expression of his personality and exhibition of his power and extension of his character. And we lost that in the garden. But Jesus Christ came. He is the perfect expression of his, uh, of his personality, the, the exhibit of his power that was lost And in Jesus Christ, we gain back the paradise that we lost. Second statement. Choosing self results in a false hope that emphasizes man's dignity but ignores God's eternity. It emphasizes man's dignity. It says man is able to handle life. Will Durant, an educator and writer and philosopher, this is what he said, nothing in life that is certain except defeat and death. A sleep from which it seems there is no awakening. Faith and hope disappear. Doubt and despair are the order of my day. Herbert G. Wells, philosopher, writer, playwright. The time has come to reorganize my being, but I cry out. I cannot adjust my life to secure any fruitful peace. Here I am at 65, still seeking peace. It's just a hopeless dream. Eugene O'Neill, Pulitzer Prize winner, Nobel Prize winner, wrote the the marvelous play, Long Day's Journey Into Night, from that play, this statement. Life's only meaning now is death. So face it with courage. Death comes like a blanket on a cold, cold night. Ernest Hemingway, author and novelist. There is no remedy for anything in life. Death is a sovereign remedy for all misfortune. I live in a vacuum. It is as lonely as a radio when the batteries are dead. And I know there's no current to plug into. That's the witness of men, humanistic men, who have said, I can make it on my own. My plea tonight is to come to Jesus Christ 
For in Jesus Christ we find, we discover what man has lost because of his sin. And I promise you by the authority of God's word that Jesus Christ can bring that fulfillment and the joy and the authority, the, 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 the paradise that's been lost to bring fulfillment and meaning and joy that you constantly and desperately seek. Would you bow and pray with me? Father, we thank you that you've not left us without hope. That the only reason why a man has to live in despair is his own rebellion and rejection. And help us to see that Jesus Christ, God's Son, came into a world that had been lost by sin to recover for man what man lost in the fall and to give man dominion and authority, the ability to, be, to live like a king, to reign and to ultimately have everything under his rule that the goal of God for human history and for all of mankind is that we be destined to a throne. And I pray for us who live in constant failure and defeat and sin to recognize and discover that Jesus is our only hope for the life that we desire and you desire for us. Because I pray in Jesus' name for His sake. Now there are three invitations tonight. These three invitations are just a part of what I've tried to express. The first invitation is an invitation to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. To come and claim by faith the Lord Jesus who died for you. He said, he said the Scripture says that He... He tasted death for everyone, but He brings many sons to glory. That is, not everyone will avail, will appropriate what He's accomplished for them in death. Only by your faith and trust in Him. Or maybe to come and join the church, place your life here and follow the Lord with us. Rededication of your life, as some did this morning, as a part of your Christian growth and pilgrimage. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.